the loveliest drone. Footnote 1. This story was originally written because Jerry Lynn had asked me to write her a short story since we were dating. After writing the story, my first thought was, well, this is a piece of shit. Just like with Ashlyn, I can never seem to care on command and make anything meaningful. Although it's true my relationship with Jerry Lynn fell apart because of my inability to care, I don't think that is the failure of this piece. The depth, symbolism, and metaphors upon further examination seem to highlight my honesty in a way that I tend to regularly avoid. 2. This one has some hints in it as well, as to my feelings towards Jerry Lynn in comparison to the poem slash song I wrote for her. But this story is entirely symbolic and metaphorical, which is really interesting for understanding how I try to live my life in metaphors. And it's more of a piece about how fucked up my mind is. But symbolically, the room is you. Or your dorm room, because for some strange reason, I thought it was the loveliest room in the world. Maybe I was just taken by your typewriter collection and your records. 3. As stated in the previous note, the title stems from my fascination with Jerry Lynn's room. As I explained it in the nonfiction Book of Purple, but the room struck me like seeing the reflection of the most beautiful woman or object in the world. My metaphorical understanding between my internal brokenness and my love for the occupant of the room is expressed in the short story, The Loveliest Room. There were, oh God, there were so many typewriters crowding around an old style desk and my mind can't help but think of Caroline and how much she loves to write and would love this collection of typewriters and two crates, two flipping crates of records. My mind couldn't help but think of Ashlyn and how excited she had been to get a record player and how I'd given her the Jimmy Buffett albums that my uncle gave me one year for Christmas. Jerry Lynn didn't have any Buffett, but she had about every other album I could ever need. And, and dear reader, a loft! Not an actual one like in Sebastian's house, but the bed was lofted up in the air as to create space underneath it, and everything just fell together in such a lovely mess. But it was beautiful. End footnotes. He. Footnote. The character goes unnamed throughout the story, obviously a literary device at universalizing the theme, but also to reflect the lack of importance that I place on myself and my feelings. Although the character is not me, it is based on myself. End footnote. He thought that he had the most beautiful room in the world. Footnote. Ironic since the main character, male, is the owner of the room, whereas with the subject it's based on, the female owns the room and the male merely visits. Maybe such cost of ownership is why the room is so much lonelier and in decay, although the rooms are not even the same rooms to begin with. End footnote. As the paint footnote. Paint and color are used throughout the piece as symbolically reflecting the emotional state of the main character of the world at large. Specifically, I divide my life into, at present, two books. The Book of Green, Caroline, and the Book of Purple, Caroline slash Jerry Lynn. This piece comes from the Book of Purple, which makes it ironic that the color is not used within the piece. Purple comes from both 
being Caroline's new favorite color, and from the color of Jerry Lynn's hair when I met her. As the paint chips, footnote, in Caroline's story about orange, she uses rust flakes slash chips as a symbolism for power. Either that's the comparison I'm trying to make here, or I like the word chip because it reminds me of Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. Your choice, dear reader. As the paint chips peeled, footnote. Such a verb has to have a double meaning to my short story orange, since you'd peel an orange. The paint chips, as they flake off, represent the same loss of hopefulness that the discarded orange peels represented within that short story. End footnote. <laughs> as the paint chips peeled off the yellow walls, footnote. There was something in one of Caroline's short stories about a yellow couch or the color yellow as being symbolic to furniture slash room arrangement. So that is where the color comes from. I, I tried to search through Facebook to find the short story in her notes, but alas, I failed at the quest. I did stumble across some absolutely adorable Facebook posts of Caroline from 2010, but that's not helpful in adding to my citations. End footnote. As the paint chips peeled off the yellow walls, he thought about what color... Footnote. Symbolically, color has been a motif within Caroline and I's discussions. Of course, green is always my symbolic color for love. Additionally, each of us wrote a short story on orange, hers being better than mine, but I do like my work as well. End footnote. Whew! As the paint chips peeled off the yellow walls, he thought about what color the room had been when it had been originally painted. Footnote. A question as to what color Jerry Lynn's hair originally was does seem to float through my mind, but another part of me says that it doesn't matter, that the room or her hair was originally whatever color that I meant it at. And it, it is merely man's obsession with history and change over time that makes us wish to look into the past and see the world how it once was. But that is not what is important. End footnote. The obvious answer was white. Footnote. Semicolon. My brother made me watch a humorous video on semicolons after driving to Florida to visit Jerry Lynn. Oh, although this, this was over a year after writing the story and, and therefore it has little to do with it now. Semicolons! End footnote. Every room is painted white. Footnote. I'm not a fan of white rooms, hence the murals on my walls. Although, personally, I really dislike white ceilings. Like, I feel that one could paint the ceilings to add color to any room. End footnote. But, the way the paint peeled with specks of blue and green in it, he couldn't quite blame the dirt for such elegant colors. Here, the literal becomes metaphorical, similar to the connection of Rainbow Connection, the combination of colors seeks to explain the persona that the room is meant to convey, in this case, Jerry Lynn. 
The metaphor would unfold like this. Originally, using John Locke's theory of tabula rasa, the girl was a blank slate, i.e. white. Throughout the course of her life, she picked up love, green, depression, blue, guessing at the meaning, etc. The dirt would be the dirty parts of life that get stuck to us as well. Unintended but damaging events that have the power to change humans as well as the purity of the wall. End footnote. The brown footnote. Although obviously the color of dirt, this was also the color that Ashlyn said was her favorite. With my high valuation of colors with love, that has to mean something. End footnote. The brown was from dirt, the white from the plaster where the paint had flaked to the ground, and the yellow from the sun paling the room, but indistinguishable behind the faded face lay the most wonderful mural that a young artist had spent his nights repainting to practice his art until he was evicted for spending his rent money on paint. Footnote. Alluding to my love of murals on the wall, this line hints at what it is just out of reach, what is just beyond our true power of knowledge, beyond our knowing. Within the girl, the man sees potential, sees promise, sees beauty that is not really visible on the surface level, where everyone else will write her off as trash. He sees something purely beautiful that he'd spent his whole life trying to figure out. End footnote. Or, so he liked to think of the wall. The sofa footnote. Again, I feel like this is a symbol of Caroline's that I stole from one of her short stories, but the details escape me. End footnote. The sofa was his pride and joy. Footnote. The phrase pride and joy comes from Jimmy Buffett's A Permanent Reminder of a Temporary Feeling. End footnote. He had rescued footnote. I did have a love affair with Chippendale Rescue Rangers when I was a kid, so the concept of rescuing has this connotation. At the same time, it is also a metaphorical that he rescues items in the hope that someone will rescue him. End footnote. He had rescued it out of the trash. Footnote. I'm pretty sure there were multiple times I rescued out of the trash when I was a kid. Multiple things. I remember crying the night we had to throw our TV away because we got a new one, even though it would only work half the time. Other things magically found their way back into the house, despite being on the curb. End footnote. And the stains only ran across the couch like rain on a car window. Footnote. Have you ever sat and truly watched rain race across a car's window? Staring out at the darkened sky and landscape while various drops race across the cool glass. And when you get tired of counting or staring, you can fall asleep with your face to the cold pain. Or better yet, place your pillow in between so that the other side will get cool and it will feel so lovely when you flip it over. End footnote. Because he had been too slow. Footnote. 
How many times have we been too slow to do something important? Instead of doing what needs to be done, we get slowed down or hesitate. Specifically, with my relationship with Sherry Lane, that's what I did. I put on the brakes to delay until it was too late, until all I had left was a broken sofa that I could only gingerly use. Although this metaphor isn't about that relationship, but past ones, about the main character's reflection of those that he had loved before the room and how these crumbled due to his actions, lack of actions, <clears throat> or mistaken actions. All the reasons why the room is important. It's all that he has left. End footnote. Going back, he had rescued it out of the trash and the stains only ran across it like rain on a car window because he had been too slow to reach the curb in time. He knew the girl. Footnote, a previous love interest of the character. Although most likely Ashlyn in a metaphor of me, it could very likely be either Caroline or Chelsea as well. However, the only one of these three that I ever made out with would have been Ashlyn, making her the most likely. However, the character herself is most likely a character one would find in one of Caroline's short stories and not actually a person whom I ever dated. All this should be read into this character. End footnote. He knew the girl all too well and couldn't stand to see her sofa tossed aside like the piece of junk it was. It had been her grandparents. Footnote. This reference refers to the couch that my dad had from his parents. It eventually found its way to mine in my brother's room before being taken apart to be thrown away. I still have feelings of regret that it was tossed aside as a piece of junk. End footnote. It had been her grandparents before she moved off to get her own place. Footnote. The only girl that would have met the description of having her own place would be Jerry Lynn, which again complicated the metaphor of exactly who this girl is. If she is, as symbolically should be, a previous love, then she cannot also be the current lover of the main character, i.e. the room. However, taking into account my emotional state at the time of writing this, this understanding is possible. I could have already written off Jerry Lynn as a previous lover <clears throat> because I feared slash knew that she'd eventually get frustrated and leave me, as Ashlyn and Chelsea had done, and honestly, with the way I was treating her, I can't blame her too much. Such a discourse would divide my attachment slash love for her into one component, the room, and the actions that I conveyed towards her into another, which would describe my inconsistency between my feelings and my actions. End footnote. It had been her grandparents before she moved off to get her own place, and the yellow fabric could hardly be seen against the pale yellow fading of the sun. He had planned to arrive early in the morning. Footnote. I do have a love affair with mornings. I've always remember waking up around 9 in Jerry Lynn's room, and since she was still asleep, getting up and trying to bother Laura since it was already late in the morning. Laura gave me a pack of cards, told me not to bother her, and went back to sleep. 
I played solitaire for a bit, content to be awake and enjoying the morning. Eventually, Jerry Lynn awoke and convinced me to return to cuddling with her. End footnote. But the snow! Footnote. Why snow is used symbolically in the story is anyone's guess, since the author has never been in that type of environment himself. Most likely, it's because it brings a different connotation than raining heavily. Snow can slow someone down, but you can also envision the bright sun gleaming off the beautifully, beautifully fresh fallen snow. End footnote. He had planned to arrive early in the morning, but the snow had been horrible the night before and the streets were impassable. His friend was also late with a car. Footnote. Moral of the story, work hard enough to own your own car and not have to depend on someone else. Although a rather depressing moral. End footnote. And one thing led to another, and instead of taking the sofa that he had made out on so many times, footnote. I've really only had one experience with making out on a sofa, and it was actually with a different couch than the one that this one is modeled after. Funny how metaphors blend various situations together. In high school, my girlfriend at the time, Ashley, had wanted to watch a movie, so I picked Ice Age since she'd never seen it. We got comfy on the couch, but she spent the whole time fascinated by being near me and making out with me and such, and I was trying to be a good model and focus on the movie. Oh, how I blew opportunities in my life. However, years later, she did text me saying she finally watched Ice Age, and it was a really good movie. End footnote. The sofa that he had made out on so many times from the noble position of the curb, he had to follow the beat-up sofa to the dump. Footnote. Isn't there that nursery rhyme book about being homeless in a dump? End footnote. It only had a little bit of frame damage from the ride, and if you sat on it gingerly, then it was just as comfortable as before. Footnote. We've all seen these types of chairs in a home before, right? End footnote. That was the problem with the relics from the past. They always required such careful handling. Footnote. The symbolism thus is that relationships from the past require careful handling to be useful. That really, they're broken beyond all repair, but one holds on anyways, because one is too stubborn to let it go to accept change. But a end footnote. But a place to sit was better than the floor and was his pride and joy. Footnote. As they sit in Sam's donut shop, a truly a well-lighted place, I can't help but think how wonderful it is to have a place to sit. To have a place where one is able to be accepted, a place at the table. Sure, we can use metaphors of the Lord's Supper and Christian inclusion, but maybe just a friendly smile and an acceptance of warmth is all that one really needs in life. End footnote. Mattress was a place where he could sleep like a rock, among the rocks that he had used to replace the springs. Footnote. As the essence of this paragraph is to describe relationships and friendships, so the rock metaphor 
Although I can't exactly place the exact meaning, other than intentionally trying to be a creative metaphor, represents the characters' relationships. Whether or not this is alluding to Simon and Garfunkel's I Am A Rock, very likely, or merely the talking stones from the labyrinth is anyone's guess. Definitely, though, a juxtaposition between warm and inviting friendships and hard, empty ones is intended. The idea is that I've surrounded myself with friends whom are no more useful than rocks, but for some sentimental attachment, I can't seem to throw away the dead weight. Although without the pet rocks, one is really left with nothing more than an empty bed. End footnote. Among the rocks that he had used to replace the springs, one sleeping in such position was hardly out of the ordinary. He had often he had once received it from a most generous friend. Footnote. Although many friends could be included within this description, the friend is based off of Big Jose because of my high amount of respect for him. I also remember Big Jose's TV that he bought off of Michael. End footnote. He had received it from a most generous friend who had found enough money to buy a mattress off a different friend of his, but he was most grateful. He was the type of friend that may not be seen for over six months, but every time they ran into each other, both left with such a smile and remarks of the other's nobility that the meetings were held in regard for such a long time. Footnote. Specifically, the one moment this would be describing is when I saw Bogle after watching Disney's The Muppets with Kyle. Second time I saw the movie in the theaters. We ran into Bogle and his girlfriend on a way out and couldn't help but give each other a bear hug. End footnote. As many nights at bars... Footnote. Only playing pool with Kendall and Brian could be included. Otherwise, it's metaphorical. End footnote. Or dinners at a restaurant. Footnote. Tends to be my normal mode of socialization, although that has developed after this piece was written. End footnote. Or adventures at a park. Footnote. I know I had one of these with Grant and Jerry Lynn, come to think of it. End footnote. Or movies. Footnote. Dates aren't really intended. Chelsea or Ashley. Jonathan taking me to see Bond postdates this, as well as taking Abel out for his birthday. End footnote. Or sporting games watched. Footnote. My arena football exhibitions were after this, so mainly I refer to my experiences at various games with my brother. End footnote. As many nights at the bar, or dinners at a restaurant, or adventures at a park, or movies, or sporting games watched, these two had a way of making the unimpressive event a cheap night that cost less than $5 stand out in the majesty. Footnote. I do have a love for the computer game Majesty and the phrase from the various worship songs. End footnote. Stand out in the majesty of a consumerist world. Footnote. Critique of capitalism and consumerism. Can't seem to escape those. End footnote. So that's why he didn't mind the mattress. It was a permanent reminder of a temporary feeling. Footnote. Obviously alluding to the Jimmy Buffett song. One that I have learned to appreciate as actually having well-written verses that help to propel along the multidimensional meaning of the choruses. End footnote. 
and he longed for the recreation of the distant past. Footnote. An allusion to another one of my stories, Orange, the line being, Will had the moment, but now he'd lost his hope. No one would save him again. His history was simple. He stood and he hoped. Now he had everything he... Now everything he had was in a long ago Eden orange. End footnote. His clothes, what few of them he owned, footnote. My philosophy is to have a small one-dimensional wardrobe in order to simplify the clothes process. End footnote. Lay neatly within a chest that marked that gold lay within. Footnote. Pirates for baseball or Jimmy Buffett. Arrgh. Although the metaphor with gold goes beyond that, it works to highlight the importance of these artifacts to the individuals. End footnote. One can hardly get very far without a few nice pairs of clothes. Footnote. The clothes within this paragraph are symbolic of a larger collection of artifacts that one will accumulate over the course of his slash her lifetime. With the rapid reduction of life's pleasantries within this story, it only makes sense that these are embodied within a life necessity, i.e. clothing, instead of a random collection of love notes or other memorabilia. Certainly, the character is likely to have had such notes, but they have faded away from his possession in his acquisition of the loveliest room. Now, all that remains is the bare necessities that embody this space. End footnote. One can hardly get a very far without a few nice pairs of clothes, and he had earned most of his shirts through charity service. Footnote. Seriously, how many places give you a random shirt that you don't really need to remember an event or thank you for donating your time? End footnote. And most of his shorts. Footnote. Pants are not included in my wardrobe. Although this character lives in a colder climate where it snows, so my refusal to buy pants would be doubly hard for him. There's no dumbass vaccine. It's human nature to miscalculate. End footnote. And most of his shorts through donations and thievery. His socks he had to buy. Footnote. The contrast between stealing pants and buying socks resides in the metaphor that socks represent one of the most noble pieces of clothing. Particularly, this comes from the fact that my granddad is known for wearing his long wool socks. End footnote. Which was unfortunate, but a man can always use pairs of clean and fresh socks. Footnote. This comes from Dumbledore's assertion that one always needs some good pairs of socks. End footnote. Now, that he was old, he didn't need underwear. Footnote. Jimmy Buffett's a pencil-thin mustache. End footnote. So that was one less article to worry about. He was never exactly sure about the history of the chest. Footnote. 1. I admire that there was a random ranting list, and then all of a sudden, oh wait! How does he have a pirate's chest? However, a clothing chest would be an allusion to my big red box, as Granddad calls it, where I kept my dirty clothes while I was in college. Footnote 2. There's a chest that has been in my room and another in my mother's room that are both of high importance to her. 
having a high value on its chest directly stems from this motherly connection. End footnote. Maybe it had been a pirate. Footnote. Raise the Jolly Roger. End footnote. Long ago. And he had been the only descendant and inherited it from his treasured past. Footnote. Comparisons between a pirate's treasure and how I seek to hold onto my past as if it were a valuable gold. End footnote. Maybe he had stolen it on one of his many epic adventures which ended with him having a large amount of gold in one hand and a score full of women in another. But he was sure that, footnote, probably the most likely and truthful although less exciting of their origin tales. End footnote. Maybe he had received it from a former employer or a shopkeeper whom he was getting rid of it in a remodel and would be glad for it to go to a proper use. Footnote. Similar to how Ron gave away the trash can that I gave him as a Secret Santa present to a nearby classroom that might be able to actually use it. End footnote. All of these stories seem to be equally possible. In reality, they were all an entirely accurate description of how his closed chest came into his possession. Footnote. The emphasis here is that the stories help define the artifact. One can believe this is in understanding certain pieces of clothing. For example, the dress that I wore of Jerry Lynn's had some special history to her even before my own wearing it. The reason she gave as far as why she could not part with the dress so they could not have a memorabilia of our night together. Other shirts particularly come from charity service or from a relative, a concert, or some other outing that makes them special. However, the accuracy of where and how something came into our possession is, at times, in suspect. These semi-true stories get told in our minds long enough that until they become undoubtedly true, even if these accounts aren't precisely the way that things happen. End footnote. This left the lamp. Footnote. Metaphors to lamps, such as the lamp post from the Chronicle of Narnia, can be read into this symbolism. End footnote. That shone like an orb in the room as the only article left to describe. It was a rather insignificant lamp. Footnote. I feel like that phrase, it was rather insignificant, comes from somewhere, but I'm not exactly positive where. Maybe it's from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the description of Earth. Yes, yes, I, I think that is where it's from. End footnote. It was merely a pole with a light bulb on top of it that he had picked up from a store for a dollar. Footnote. Grant also bought a cheap lamp for our dorm room. Not exactly a noble lamp like Jason's, but something to provide a little light in the dark. Next to normal reference postdates this writing although the universal concept should be applied. End footnote. Because it was supposed to have more of a design. Footnote. The reinforcement of the idea that something should have more or should be better in order to be accepted in society. A consistent theme within this story. End footnote. It was merely a pole with a light bulb on top of it that he had picked up from a store for a dollar because it was supposed to have more of a design to it. But finding a light bulb was much worse, and he lived in constant fear that this one would burn out. Footnote. 
my take on the fact that people like to keep lights off, or never turn them on to save electricity. Although in my mom's house there are a pair of lights we like to keep from turning on because they're way up in the skylight, and if they ever go out, then it will be difficult to replace them. So in a specific context, this fear is very real. Here it is overgeneralized to anything that one might hope for, anything that, as next to normal states, may provide a light in the dark. That hopes and dreams shouldn't be overextended, shouldn't really be counted on at all, because eventually they'll run out and leave one in the dark. The same thing one would come to if they pessimistically read Orange. Again, Simon and Garfunkel's idea that if I never loved, I never would have cried. End footnote. And he lived in constant fear that this one would burn out. And so he spent every night in total darkness for fear to use his lamp because it would drain the precious power of light. It was no use explaining to him that light bulbs work on a time frame where they work for a specific number of months, after which it is time for a new light bulb regardless of whether or not the original one has gone out. Footnote. This is probably my favorite line in this short story because of the concept it proposes. That change is inevitable and that bad things will happen whether we can consciously work to avoid them or bring forth the change. That given the right amount of time that has passed, something will break or go wrong or just happen. It's just the way it is, even though we live in fear of trying to prolong the inevitable. End footnote. He was perfectly convinced that if he never ever used his light bulb, it would last for a little while at least. Footnote. That's the sacrifice he is willing to make in his life. A little bit longer of stability slash safety for a life devoid of light. A life devoid of hope and feelings and love. If he never ever used his heart, then maybe he'd stay sane for a few extra days. The man sitting, footnote, the previous paragraph described various components of the room and the emotions of the main character projected because of these artifacts. Specifically, this paragraph actually combines these and tells the little bit of story that is included within this work. End footnote. The man sitting on his faded yellow sofa was very content with his apartment. Footnote. Similarly, this would be read as a declaration of my contentment with Jerry Lynn with a hope to declare that surely I have the loveliest girlfriend in the world. The truth of this, specifically through this piece and my own feelings, is entirely certain. On one hand, I truly believed it, and in hindsight, I know that she is by far one of the greatest girls I will ever know slash date. At the same time, using the juxtaposition of the room, there's a lot of doubt as far as the exact irony of the statement. Can such a distorted object truly be that lovely? In the moment of writing this, I was consumed by enough fear and doubt that I wouldn't be able to truly answer that question. Still, even now, with my sheltered mindset, I fear I couldn't answer that question with complete confidence. End footnote. And he declared to himself that surely I have the loveliest room in the world. It was very true that it was a large enough room to give him plenty of space to call his own. 
his contentment with hiding his beauty behind a sun-faded, paint-peeling wall made him very happy that he did not have to face all of the lovely components of his heart that made life so enjoyably lovable, but which cost such a high price. Footnote. We will pay the price, but we will not count the cost. Ultimately, this is the essence of this piece. But even as I write this now, my body is shutting down and refusing to truly look at what I need to look at inside of me. All of those lovely components of life that make things truly wonderful, but bring along pain and sorrow as well. End footnote. Just look at the artist. He commented, he completed his mural, but lost such a lovely room. The sofa began to give under his weight and he shifted his position to help hold up the fragile structure. He had worked so hard to keep the remembrance of his old life together that they had become useless threadbare faded cloth attached to broken wood that resembled an oddly useful function which seemed only possible in theory due to the broken reality of the object. His friends, he would always enjoy seeing every six months, but one has to have an awfully large amount of friends to be occupied when one can only talk to a friend every 183 days. With relationships, he had become a lovely polished rock that slept away any discomfort in the bed that he created. He had one treasure, and that he wore about every day. He had once had another treasure, particularly the girl whom he had rescued from his sofa, his sofa from, but she had since passed away, as did the letter she sent right before she died. Footnote. One, reading through this list, I'm like, wow, lovely metaphors. Two, I was also like, what? The girl he dated actually died? There's very little precedent in my own life for such a literary statement, since I have never experienced such a loss. My friend Lisa did before I met her, though, so such a concept could be derived from that. However, the real reason would most likely be to make sure that hope was as dead as a doornail. End footnote. The other treasures were never enough to clearly polish this diamond in the rough, and he had resorted to keeping no other treasures than what he had neatly folded away within his room. The light of his face had once shone so lovely to all who encountered this young man. Footnote. Postdating, however, the next normal concept would be to the girl who was burning so brightly like the light from Orion above and still I will search for her nightly if you see her please send her my love end footnote but he had since learned to keep his light and happiness for only those who would respect giving it footnote Specifically, this is in reference to Chelsea and other individuals that I met at Southeastern, who I opened up to and only felt disrespected, hurt, and insulted. There's really no reason to describe it other than total pain, disrespect. Dear reader, do you know what it feels like to learn that your friends, or so-called friends, are incapable of caring about you and have no respect for your actual thoughts or feelings? 
See my autobiography for more details. End footnote. But he had since learned to keep his light and happiness for only those who would respect giving it. So he rarely even smiled to the most kind-hearted of gentlemen. But no matter where he was emotionally, he let out a beaming smile. Footnote. This phrase refers to when I took my stepbrother Kyle to Steak and Shake. We accidentally ended up there for, at happy hour. His face was beaming as he looked around in disbelief at his surroundings until well after our food came. I don't think I've ever seen him that happy. Well, come to think of it, I don't think I've seen most people that happy ever. End footnote. He let out a beaming smile, looking around at his glorious apartment that was all too much his. It was the loveliest sight in the world. His face teared up in thoughts of joy, just looking around at the loveliest room in the world. Footnote. A conversation on the comment section of Facebook when I finally posted this. Me. Who would quit liking my note and start commenting on it? Just saying. Joe Torres. Did you write this, Corey? This is amazing. So beautiful. Did you write this? I love the juxtapositions. Me. Of course I wrote it. That's why I posted it as my note. Juxtaposition between... Oh, the inherentness in the title. Of course. The metaphors are really what's beautiful and amazing. Like literally all of the objects are metaphors slash symbols for things in his life. I love his worldview. Me, which is Joe. So, me. Or is that sarcasm? Joe, no, I really do love it. Did Did you read it to RJ yet? Me, I, I don't know. I can show him if you'd like. Or what are you doing? Maybe the three of us should hang out. Joe, oh, are you still in town? I hope, I hope nobody still steals this from you. Me. Yeah, I'm just about to leave my friend's apartment. Joe, it's really good. I had no idea you could write. Me, why would somebody steal it? It's too much for me to make sense to anyone else. Joe, RJ's? Uh, anyone who wants something original to use for writing contest, a scholarship, etc. I don't think anyone should put their works on Facebook. Me, neither do I. I just get lucky. In all honesty, my girlfriend at the time just asked me to write her a short story, so I wrote this. I thought, man, once again, I'm asked to write a nice piece, and I just turned out a pile of shit. What, that's what happened with the song I wrote for my girlfriend in high school. But on reflection, there's actually some beauty in this one. Meh. I'd rather have people read what I wrote. At least they'd get to know me better. Joe. Yeah. This is you, isn't it? It's very romantic. Romanticism-like. Are you with RJ? Me. No, he doesn't have internet. I was about to head over that way to finish off the pizza we bought yesterday, though. Where are you at? Joe. That's right. I'm at the school library. Me. I see. Is RJ with you, or is he still sleeping? Joe. I wish you could write my paper for me. Oh, oh, he's not with me. I haven't talked with him all day, so I don't know. Me. Well, if you were my girlfriend, sure. But you're not, so alas. Anyway, you want me to go wake up RJ and bring him over to help with your paper? 
he should have gotten up like uh, five. He should have gotten like five hours of sleep. Joe, lol, lol. <laughs> Corey, you're a silly goose. Me. Just tell your female friends. Although I'm rather done with southeastern girls. Something like that. Something like that. Joe, I'm not working on my paper. Hence Facebook. Me. Oh, some people are good at multitasking. How am I supposed to know? <laughs> Joe, yeah, there are very few Southeastern girls I would give the time of day to. Me, well, we agree on something. Joe, yep, I'm not one of those. Me, pizza and OJ time? Joe, sure. Me, okay, I'll have to leave internet. See you in a bit. Wait, 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 Joe. I, I can't, I don't have a ride today. Me, a ride? I meant I'd go pick up RJ and bring the pizza with me to you, silly goose. Joe, tell RJ I said hi and that I love him, that I can't wait to see him tomorrow. Oh, really? Me, when are you leaving school? Joe, well, mother was going to come by anyways from 6.30 to 7. Me, K. Joe, but don't bring him here. He needs to sleep at least seven hours. Me, K. Joe, if you're in town tomorrow, then we could hang out. End footnote. End transcript.